0: welcome to bounce back stronger the podcast that explores ways to find peace and purpose after difficulty i'm your host donna ferris and today we have jen carter with us a little bit about jen jen carter is a coral cryobiologist, yoga and meditation teacher dj therapeutic horseback writing instructor justice advocate lomi lomi practitioner and now a vet student the waves of jen's life have taken her all over the world and given her so much varied experience Throughout it all, even as a young child, Jin has understood that we are all connected. Those connections with people or with animals or the planet as a whole really help us navigate the waves of our lives. And Jin loves helping people cultivate these connections. Currently, she is consumed by vet school, but is looking forward to the future where she can get back to connecting more and bringing all her passions together again. Thank you so much for being here today, Jin.
1: Thanks for having me,
0: Donna. It's so good to see you. Uh, We were together as teaching assistants for Elephant Journal. Boy, It's been probably five years since that. (laughs) And we've kept in touch, but so good to see you and hear your voice, really. (laughs) Well, I was so excited to see you start veterinary school. And I thought maybe with the intro, it might be really helpful to understand your journey. There's been so many interests and so many things, and you've been in so many places. Maybe tell us a little bit about navigating all of your journey. Yeah,
1: Yeah, one of the things I find interesting in life is when uh, you find those moments where life kind of feels like it's falling apart, and then it turns into something you'd never expected that's even better than before. I guess getting to vet school was at a time when it wasn't just me, but like the whole world was falling apart. So uh, COVID obviously happened uh, during 2020. And I had been at that time teaching yoga and doing body work and meditation and mostly privately. So I was going into people's homes. And so when COVID happened, it just wasn't going to (laughs) work what I had been doing. And so I moved back to my family's farm that's um, here in Southwest Virginia. And my mom said, you should go back to school. And I think she thought I'd get another graduate degree. And I thought, you know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian, And so I emailed up here to now a person I know very well, who's wonderful. But at the time, I had no idea who she was just the admin person up here at Virginia Tech. I told her a little bit about myself and what I had done historically and was basically asking what prereqs do I have to do? I thought I was going to have to go back to undergrad for like a year or two to do prereqs, from what I could tell. And she was basically like, you've done a lot of things. Uh, you should take this one medical terminology class and then you should apply. Wow. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. And so I got in and now uh, here we are at school. Previously to that, like I said, I had been teaching yoga and meditation and doing body work. <laughs> but previously to that, I had been a marine biologist. I was out in Hawaii doing marine biology. And I got there at a time I felt like my life was really falling apart too. I had been in graduate school. I was working on a PhD. I was actually in Kentucky, of all places, nowhere near the ocean. I was working on freshwater fish biology. And my advisor had his life like literally fall apart. Like both his parents got cancer, his wife divorced him, like all these things happened. And he decided he needed to leave. And so I decided to finish up with a master's and was trying to figure out what to do and ended up very randomly getting my job in Hawaii, sort of like just very, very strange. Like I was all by myself in the lab, just got this phone call from this lady who was like, in Hawaii, can you come here?
0: (laughs) And you're like, what?
1: (laughs) And she like spit out all this Information very quickly, and then was like, "I can pay you this much money. Take a month to think about it. I'll call you back." (laughs) Like, (laughs) what is going on? I didn't even (laughs) think it was real. And then she called back two weeks later, and was like, "I didn't offer you enough money, but you can still have the two weeks to think about it. I'll call you back." And I was like, "Don't hang up the phone. Hold on. (laughs) Like, I have questions." And so, yeah, ended up in Hawaii like so randomly, but at a time, you know, things like just kind of felt like they were falling apart. So it's interesting how. Life works, and how you get to where you are, and you never know what's going to (laughs) happen.
0: You never know. What do you do in those times that are so uncertain?
1: I mean, it's really evolved with my life. Those things would happen when I was younger. I think a lot of times you kind of just panic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then you learn to have better mechanisms of, of coping with things. Meditation has always been a good way to ground through chaos, and. For me, a lot of it also is just that perspective of like being able to look back and see like there's times when things have fallen apart and then they've turned into something even better. And so just having that perspective to be able to give yourself the grace to meditate, to breathe through it, to know that it's going to change and something else is going to happen. A lot of times when we're going through things, it's hard to remember that. But I think that's one of the most important things. Yeah, I think that's a great mindset.
0: And like you said, I think it's hard to, to remember it. And I yeah. give you tons of credit for doing that.
1: <laughs> Do
0: you want to talk a little bit about Taj's journey and your sure. journey with, with him?
1: Yeah, that was definitely another time when life fell apart and turned into something beautiful. Um, yeah. yeah, so he's here now in the other room, which is amazing. So um, for our listeners that,
0: that don't for know. For a lot of reasons, it's amazing.
1: About, yeah, it's amazing. I had been in Hawaii doing marine biology for a number of reasons, having nothing to do with him. I was burnt out on what we we were doing. And so I had decided to make the shift to teaching yoga, which I had also been doing uh, for a while concurrently with marine biology stuff. My best friend from college, so he's been one of my best friends now for 23 years. He got arrested for something that he didn't do and got put into prison for a very long time. And so we were the kind of friends, though, that like, we would talk twice a year and it would always be the same but it wasn't like we talked every day and so then when that happened I decided the only thing I could really do was to be there for him as much as possible so we did start talking every day and writing and emailing and and then life was still going on in Hawaii at the beginning of it for quite a few years and then I got out of a different relationship and tried to navigate dating for a while which is just kind of I don't know it's weird And I had kind of decided, like, I think I'm just going to be single forever because <laughs> I I thought that might be a thing. But then I realized uh, that I was falling in love with him. And so we decided to get together. And it was around the same time I decided to make my job shift. Changing careers in Hawaii because of the cost of living just seemed so daunting. And we were falling in love. And he was here in Virginia. And I wanted to be closer to him. But I also had it in my mind <laughs> that I was going to get him out of prison Sooner than later, which is probably a crazy idea, but I had said it, I was going to... But he's leave. in the
0: next room. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but he's in the next room. So not so. It was right, not which, a crazy idea. <laughs> which is sooner than later. He would have been still locked up at this point. I moved back to Virginia to start my business here and be closer to him. And at the time, we were working on a pardon, which is really, really difficult to get, but we were working on that. That wasn't panning out. And then he and I together, we wrote a law to give people behind bars chances to basically earn time off of their sentence it's not like a get out of jail free card you have to do all these things that earn your time uh, virginia is one of the few states in the country that doesn't have parole which um mm. i think it might only be two it's really low but we don't have parole it was abolished in 1995 if you were locked up before 1995 you still have parole so people kind of misinterpret what's going on but anybody after 1995 doesn't have a chance at parole for the most part prior to 1995 there was parole and then there was this other thing that at that time they called the good time system and then they changed it to the earned sentence credit system but i think it's i think it's better than parole because it's basically like if you behave if you hold a job while you're behind bars if you get an education if you do rehabilitation murders you do all these things you tick all the boxes you just earn time off which is to me, like you can see what you have to do. Whereas with parole, you go in front of a board of people and if they think you look funny, they tell you no, right? You can't control it as much. They had gotten rid of parole and they truncated down that good time system. So it was kind of irrelevant. You could earn like a maximum of like 11% off, but it was really difficult to do. Like you have to be perfect, perfect to earn that much. So we realized that there's a lot of people fighting for parole to come back, but it's a very uphill battle because it doesn't exist anymore. But this system still existed, and so we wrote a law to re-expand it back up to an amount of time that would be more relevant and, and more impactful for people. It was really tough lobbying. <laughs> Obviously, this is not what I went to school to do and just kind of had to wing it, And but we made it work. And yeah. uh, actually, kind of due to covid and everything that was going on with um, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. We tried one session and it didn't get through. And then they did a special session for COVID and Black Lives Matter. And it was able to get through at that time. So as part of like the justice reform stuff. And so, yeah, so he was able, he got out about three years earlier than he would have. And then as a a bonus in my mind, (laughs) uh, thousands of other people in Virginia prisons have been able to Get out early, and so lots of families reunited. And what you know, you? It, it was very difficult. Like the the politics and the lobbying and all that, so stressful. You write a law, and then they change it and truncate it and alter things. So it ended up it doesn't apply to everyone. They carved out certain crimes not to earn, and so it's been kind of stressful that way. But yeah, he's here in the other room, so <laughs> it's so That's exciting. It's amazing. It's
0: incredible that you turned this difficulty into something that not only really changed your life and Taja's life, but also so many other people's lives.
1: Yeah. And even aside from passing the law, we wouldn't probably have gotten together if he hadn't gotten locked up in the first place. And so it's, it's interesting how things like that happen. If you ask him, he will say (laughs) that that he wouldn't change anything if it meant he wasn't going to get to be with me. I personally am like, you could not have gone to prison. Like, I would have been (laughs) a. But I think it's really sweet, though. (laughs) But I see where you're coming from, too. (laughs) You have to write that story. And you and Taj did write a book. There's It's called Parent Trapped and it Parent voices Parents Behind Bars. And so he had written a letter. It's so beautiful. He'd written this letter, like I say letter, but it's more like a book. <laughs> this like really long letter to his son from a previous relationship who was quite young when he got locked up. And he had all these things he wanted to teach him. So he wrote him this beautiful letter and then realized that there's So many other parents behind bars that have things to tell their kids as well. And so he solicited letters from other parents behind bars to their children and used his letter to like give a framework to the book. And then there's all these other letters from other parents. And then he is a sociologist and criminal justice advocate, even from before he got locked up. And so the back end of the book is all these policy suggestions that he wrote for how to keep families more bonded and united when people are behind bars. We published that a couple years ago, but we definitely do at some point want to write more about the love story part of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you would, you could make a movie out of that. That's, that's a yeah. great script. Oh no.
1: The whole time, the whole time he was behind bars, we like mock casted the movie. <laughs> <laughs> And like, he'd, you know, go to some new facility and meet some new character of a person. And we'd be like, okay, so-and-so is going to play that guy.
0: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think that is an amazing story, really. And what's Taj doing now?
1: When he was behind bars and how we published the book was in conjunction with a bunch of other stuff that he was doing. So like I said, he was already doing this work before he got locked up. When you're behind bars, it's really hard to be effective in the world. And so I was kind of like helping him do some things that he wanted to do. And so we ended up deciding to create a nonprofit called the Humanization Project. He's spending most of his time, which is a lot of time, like he's working more than 40 hours a week, doing humanization project stuff, which still includes policy stuff and lobbying sort of things, but also like different committees that are working on advocacy. He's trying to get, when he was behind bars, he had a program for college students that get paired up with people behind bars and they write letters back and forth. So he's getting that going again and a bunch of other stuff. But at the moment, we have no funding for the humanization project. So he's also trying to find a job, which if anyone has ever been locked up, it's really, really difficult to find a job. So he's working on that, which at the moment, we are living on student loans for my vet school. So yeah, he's going to have to have a job, but he's got some good leads at the moment one that he's really excited about that he's gone to several rounds of interviews for. So hoping that that's going to work out, but yeah, so at the moment he's running humanization project and applying for jobs. Well, we send you light, you both light in
0: that. And he's got masters in sociology. He has a PhD. (laughs) Yeah, it's a PhD in sociology. And so if anybody knows (laughs) of any good jobs for a really brilliant sociologist that was (laughs) incorrectly uh, interned, Let let us know. Reach out to the podcast.
1: Yeah, he has such an interesting um, melding of everything. He's got real knowledge and experience of actually being behind bars, but then also has the PhD knowledge of criminal justice and all of that. So he's an interesting package of a person. (laughs) And the ability to make change, who knows Mm -hmm. the process to make
0: change that can be beneficial. So just a great combination for someone out there, hopefully. One of the things I definitely want us to touch base on what you're seeing with animals and just how they help us heal and process our own feelings and all of those things.
1: I have always been blessed with an excessive amount of animals in my life. (laughs) I grew up on a very little horse farm that is like, if you come see it, it just, it looks like horse heaven. Like it's just so incredibly cute. Both my parents Love animals. My mom is way more hands on. She's the one that takes care of the horses and stuff, but my dad loves animals too. We always had the horses and some dogs and cats. And then I think at some point around the time I was like thir- 12 or 13, aside from horses, dogs, and cats, I had 18 other animals somewhere in the house or on the property that were other yeah. things like guinea pigs and hamsters and rabbits and fish and an iguana and <laughs> like all of these things. And they were so supportive always of all of that, which was (laughs) so nice because a lot of times kids want pets and parents are not so keen. But like my dad was, (laughs) like I said, a little less hands-on with them, but so unfazed. One night I had gotten a new hamster. Mom and I had picked it up on the way home from (laughs) school or whatever and just hadn't told dad. And he came home (laughs) and it had immediately gotten out of its enclosure, like unbeknownst to me. And it ran across the floor in front of him totally unfazed like he totally knew it was a hamster but he looks at me and goes because it was this little blonde thing and he goes was that a potato chip (laughs) (laughs) that hamster got named potato chip (laughs)
0: that's a um, good dad
1: (laughs) when i moved to hawaii i uh took my dog with me she was a husky this was the only time in my life i didn't have at least a dog and a cat. But she, when she was young, decided she wanted to eat cats. I don't know why. It's the only dog I've ever had that did that. And so Huskies. I just had her for a while. And when I first went, she had to stay with my parents for a few months because of the Hawaii quarantine laws. They can go and get quarantined there, which I think is always just horrible. But you can do your homework on the mainland before you go. And so she stayed with my parents while we were waiting for this waiting period of her rabies test and all that. And when that was going on, like, because she existed in the world, like I was okay, like being there and not having her with me. But then years later, she passed away. She was 13. Aww. You know, she was an old dog, and she passed away. And she, she also, she liked to eat cats, and she also liked to run away. Huskies just like will they run do. in a straight line forever, forever, and yep. you can't have them off. I leash. fostered
0: one. It was unbelievable. What yeah. they she would she would actually break the the yeah. kennel that we had her in. It, it was go. unbelievable.
1: I chased her one time when I was in graduate school from the southeast side of Lexington, Kentucky to the southwest corner of Lexington, Kentucky for four hours in my Jeep mm-hmm. one day. So, and mm-hmm. she also, when she was 10, she got loose in Hawaii and got hit by a tour bus and oh had, had her back left leg amputated and still didn't slow no. down. She was like, it's fine. No. You know.
0: They're unbelievable. <laughs>
1: So she liked to eat cats. She liked to run away. And so I decided for the first time ever in my life that I wasn't going to get a puppy until she passed away. Because I was like, I don't Mm. want her to teach the puppy bad things. (laughs) And so so she passed away in like May, I think. And there was four or five months where I hadn't gotten my puppy yet. Because Hawaii Mm. is a little different. There's not as much options. And so I was looking for a puppy and I just didn't have one. And that four or five month period... Like her passing was fine. She was older. She got lymphoma. Like all of that was fine. Not fine. But you know, like I handled it. Yeah. Okay. But then that, that period where I had no animal in the house, like I would come home and open the door and just about lose it like every mm-hmm. day. Like,
0: That's really hard. Like,
1: so yeah, having animals is just, I don't know, they ground me and make me feel good all the time. Also, just like we were talking about getting through things. I think they make such a big difference because you've got to get up and get out and do something with them. At least, after, even if it's a cat, mm-hmm. you got to get up and feed it, <laughs>
0: you know? Mm-hmm. No, you, absolutely.
1: And just having that, being responsible for some, for some other life, I think oftentimes just makes you like, oh yeah, I do have to like show up live. in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Having a, a dog where right you actually have to take it out and walk it, I think is really helpful for, you know, a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I found dogs are uniquely Capable of understanding our feelings, too. I think that people say, well, I'm surprised the dog came over. I think that they, because of how they were raised and over time, they've had to really depend on us. They really know and can read us well, which I I find incredibly helpful because they can, my dog can tell when I'm upset when I don't even tell myself I'm upset.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, Taj was reading or heard in podcast, I can't remember. uh, The other day, he was telling me that there was a new study out that says that like dogs actually do understand human sadness. And I've seen that so many times. The other thing that I find really interesting, and I think you know a little bit about me doing this. So like you said, I've done a bunch of different things (laughs) in my life. And one of those things is teaching therapeutic horseback riding lessons which is a whole nother level of animals helping people like wow it's just it's incredible i got into that that was actually a funny moment when it kind of seemed like something bad had happened and then it turned into like one of the best things i've ever done in my life i will admit i do like to drive fast and if I get a ticket, I'm usually like, I did it, That's fine, I'll pay it. But this <laughs> one time, I actually wasn't the car that was speeding. There was this like BMW like flew by me. And then he saw the police officer slamming on his brakes. And then the guy the, pulled me over. And I was like, I didn't do, like the BMW. Did, I didn't do it. But I went to court to fight it and still got found guilty. And so part of my sentence, I guess, <laughs> was that I had to do community service. And I went to this meeting with this lady who had to decide what I had to do for community service. And I was just like, give me a beach cleanup. I need to go back to work. Like I was just kind of whatever you want me to do, like I'll do it. But she was like unsatisfied for me. I don't know why. And she kept looking through this giant folder of things. And then she looks at me and she's like, would you go to Waimanalo, which is like the like countryside of the island takes like 40 minutes to get there. Uh, Maybe. And she was like, she's like, is there any chance you have any experience with kids? And I was like, yeah, I used to teach gymnastics. And then she goes, do you have any experience with horses? And I was like, yeah, actually I do. And she goes, how would you like to go lead horses for disabled children? And I was like, actually, I would just like them in general, <laughs> that sounds lovely. And so I went, oh. I went there for like my first day. And even though I knew that I wasn't guilty of this speeding ticket. I felt kind of embarrassed like to be there for community service for whatever reason. And so I was like kind of just keeping to myself and leading the horse. But I actually started teaching horseback riding lessons when I was like 10 years old. So the kid would be doing something and I would be like, hold, you know, telling him like, hold your reins this way, whatever. And the volunteers are just supposed to like, just lead the horse at the end of the day, the woman who was in charge, she was like, can you stay for a few minutes? I want to talk to you. And I thought, oh, God, I did something wrong. I flunked. I'm in trouble. And so I'm like, sure, sure, I can stay. And I go to talk to her and she looks at me and she's like, you've done this before, haven't you? And I was like, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and she goes, we really need instructors. If you would get certified, we'll pay for you to get certified. If, and we'll sign up on your hours right now. And I was like, oh, okay. Look at that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I uh, I taught horseback riding lessons for about 12 years. I taught in Hawaii. And then I taught when I was living in Richmond, I taught out in Tawana, which is towards Williamsburg, It's incredible. I had most of my students were on the autism spectrum, but I had a lot of different kids with a bunch of different things. When I was in Hawaii, I I taught both, quote, regular kids and then kids that needed the therapeutic writing. But I always say it's therapy for even me when I'm so it was very fascinating to see that because I'd have like, quote, regular lesson with able bodied, able minded kids one minute and then the next lesson would be a therapy lesson and I could have the same horse in the lesson with the able body kids and the kid would stop paying attention and the horse would go to the side to eat grass, you know, like they'd be like, whatever. And then the next lesson I would put a child on that horse who couldn't control the horse actually to save their life. You know, like the horse is behaving on its own accord and the horse would do nothing wrong. Like the Mm. kid, couldn't correct it if they needed to, but the horse would do nothing wrong. Like they would understand mm-hmm. who actually needed them and who didn't. That's was amazing. just amazing. Yeah. I have had multiple kids, three, three or four, three for sure, who had either on the spectrum or some sort of developmental delay where they said their first word ever in their life sitting on a horse in one of my lessons with their oh mom falling on the sideline because they'd never spoken ever before. It just, oh, it like still gives me chills sometimes to think about it because it's just so incredible. Yeah, this, that is such a gift. I had this one little girl, I'll never forget. She was so adorable. She got to the facility screaming. Like <laughs> the parents were trying to get her out of the truck. She didn't want to get out of the truck. She was just screaming. And so they come over and apologize to me and i'm like it's okay this is what we do let's see what we can do how about i bring a pony over to the truck see if she'll touch the pony so we bring the pony over to the truck she's still screaming this little pony scrubs bless her heart she's such a sweetheart she's standing there just waiting <laughs> the child is like screaming and it was a 30 minute lesson and for 29 minutes and 30 seconds we screamed we wouldn't do anything and at the last second she touched the pony like just ah. touched it right and so then the parents go, we're so sorry that this didn't work out. And I said, no, she touched her. Come back next week. And they were just like, what? I'm like, no, she touched the pony. Like, let's try again. Come back next week. And within like six months, she was sitting on the horse, wearing her helmet, which was a challenge to get the helmet on her head in the first place. Sitting on the horse, wearing her helmet, telling it to walk on, telling it to woe and using her reins. Like, it's just amazing. You it know, It is
0: amazing. And you th- is it? Is it the connection with the animal? Is that what does it, you think? Is it?
1: Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. I think there's something very primal in one, the connection and two, having to control something that's so big. For mm-hmm. some reason, I think it's, you know, where you're like, you've got to say, whoa, or it's not going to stop, you know, <laughs> right. there's right. something it, about it breaks that. breaks them out. There's a really cool book, and I think there's a documentary too, called Horse Boy. And the author was a reporter who, for whatever reason, specialized in like shamanic cultures and had like gone all over the world, you know, met all these shamans and like studied about different cultures and stuff. And then his son got diagnosed with autism and he would take his son for walks and stuff and found the only thing his son liked was his neighbor's horses. And so he started researching like horse cultures and ended up taking his kid to Mongolia to find these horse shaman to see if they would help him. By the end of their trip, (laughs) this thing that sounds so trivial, but anybody I suppose has ever been a parent, which I haven't, but I completely get it. By the end of the trip. He used the bathroom on his own, which he had like never done before, which I thought was so wow. interesting. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that happens too, but it's really, really good if you ever get a chance to read it. It's, uh, yeah, that sounds amazing.
0: What are you hoping to do when you're when you finish?
1: I'm not exactly positive what I'm gonna do. It's between having my own mixed animal private practice eventually, and kind of doing like I was doing with yoga, where I actually like go to people. I find it's so nice to go and actually see like the environment, and like what's going on. It gives you better insight to things. It's either that or zoo med, zoo mm. or aquatic med. Especially
0: so. with your, your marine biology yeah. capability.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of different factors as to why one or the other would be better. But we'll see. Fourth year is going to be fun because it's all clinical rotations, and I'm working on setting up a few at some zoos and aquaria-type places. So i like applied for a few and just hoping that some of them work out, but I know I have at least one good zoo lined up. So it'll be fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jen. That's all for today. If you're
0: interested in learning more about Jen's book, I'll have a link in the show notes. I hope this episode was helpful. And if it was, please subscribe, drop a review or share it with your friends and family. That's the best way to get it in the hands of those who may benefit. And if my daughters Sienna and Sylvie are listening, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. And I love you so much.
1: Bye now.